up everyone welcome back to yet another episode of behind the rainbow i'm your host elaine chaya before we get into this episode let me do my little plugs in here make sure if you're not following me on instagram to follow me on instagram at elaine chaya e-l-a-i-n-e-c-h-a-y-a i tell everyone to follow me there because i want you guys to dm me with your thoughts on each episode and connect with me there i respond to everyone's messages also make sure you subscribe to my podcast you just hit the subscribe button up at the top so you can be the first to hear the latest episodes when they come out. All right, so for today's episode, I'm really excited because I think we're all looking for a little bit of motivation and inspiration, and I try to do that with each of my guests in every episode, but there is one man in particular that ever since I was young, he has been that source of inspiration to me and my family. For those of you guys who live in LA and are specifically maybe Persian and Jewish or just Jewish or just know him because he's that famous, I have on Rabbi David Wolpe from Sinai Temple here in Los Angeles. He has been my rabbi since I was very young, and me and my family love to hear him speak every Saturday at Temple because he just gives such great words of advice and motivation that really hit home for the things that we're dealing with throughout the week. I wanted to connect with him for my Passover special episode because you know it's Passover when you start hearing this probably and this year it's a very bittersweet experience because usually for Passover on the first day we go to Temple and we go to Sinai and we hear Rabbi Wolpe speak. Well because of everything that's going on with the quarantine vibes that can't happen this year so selfishly I wanted to get my own little private sermon in for this episode and to share with you guys because I'm so not selfish like that and I wanted to talk about everything about the times that we're in what he thinks about it are we gonna get through it is the messiah coming how does this relate to Judaism how does this relate to the story of Passover he gives a lot of amazing nuggets and words of inspiration and motivation and honestly I've listened to this episode a few times already and everything he says just really hits home you don't have to be Jewish or observe Passover to really resonate with what he has to say he's absolutely the best thank you Rabbi Wolpe for being on this episode with me I cannot wait for you guys to hear what he has to say make sure you dm me with your thoughts and I'm going to put a link to his instagram and his youtube and everything in between that you can connect with him if you want to reach out to him enjoy the episode I do a little monologue intro about each of my guests, so I'm going to introduce you and why I wanted to do this. Sure. So first of all, I started this podcast in September, and I always had a list of the dream guests that I've wanted to have, and you have been on my list since the beginning, but I've been figuring out what do I even want to talk with you about, and so with everything that's happening right now, it was the perfect opportunity. Growing up, you know my mom, Devorah, she emails you on a regularly basis, so you guys are email friends. We have been going to Sinai Temple for thousands of years since I was born. Every Saturday, the thought of going to Temple was associated with Sinai and specifically with you. And of course, as a Persian Jew, for those of you guys who don't know what Sinai is, it's a temple here in Los Angeles. And Rabbi Wolpe, who is my guest today, is the main man there. You are a person that everyone goes to see and more. I know for us being Persian, yes, there is a big Persian community. So the aspect of going to be with our community members is always important. But a real reason that specifically my family and I know a lot of other people go to Sinai is to hear you speak and to hear your sermon of the week. So you've been an inspiration to my family specifically and thousands of other people around the world. So I'm very excited to have you on to talk about a lot of different things and Passover and what's going on in the world right now. It is my pleasure to be here. And thank you for that gracious introduction. To start off, I mean, everyone knows who you are, so you don't need an introduction. But for those who are listening that don't know you, do you mind just explaining a little bit about your background, where you grew up, how you decided to become a rabbi and join 
in Sinai? Well, I grew up in Philadelphia. My father was a conservative rabbi, and so I suppose that came by naturally, although I came through a different route to some extent. But I spent the first 10 years of being a rabbi teaching in Los Angeles and then in New York. I had done high holiday services at Sinai for young professionals for many years. And then when the pulpit opened up, now it's over 20 years ago, I was living in New Jersey at the time and we came to Los Angeles and I've been there ever since. And I travel a lot and lecture a lot. And I've been doing, especially recently, a lot of online classes and sending stuff out. And I write books and try to do other things outside the synagogue too. But most of what I do is at Sinai. So when I was in college, I went to UCLA. I was a sociology major in a project we had. And I think my mom emailed do this paper I wrote for a whole quarter. I studied the community of Sinai. I'll kill two birds with one stone because I go to Sinai every week anyway. So I'll study that. I wrote about my observations. And basically, I just came to the conclusion that people love to go chat and hear you speak. I think that was what I came to the conclusion. <laughs> I mean, which takes us right into where we are now. Synagogue is a really social experience. People go to synagogue to see other people even more than they go for the spiritual uplift of it, which makes sense because we're social creatures. So I realized when I fashion what I'm going to say, you have to realize who you're talking to. And the idea in part is to both comfort people and challenge them because hopefully they'll continue to talk about whatever the subject is later. What makes this time so different is that while we're connecting in all sorts of ways, what the synagogue lives on, which is everybody gathering together, is no longer possible. And so it is a time unlike that anybody I know has ever seen in which we both want to reach out, but also other people feel dangerous to us in some unspecified way. And so I was going to say, because the whole dynamic and purpose of a synagogue is for people to come together and you guys can't do that. And I know that you've created these YouTube videos that, again, my mom sends me every day. <laughs> 1.5 minutes so everyone can watch them. Exactly. But is that what inspired those videos? Or what have you guys been doing as a synagogue to kind of still create this community when there can't be a physical one? First of all, what we've been doing is we have services every morning and every afternoon, the Minion that's online. And I've been teaching classes. I taught a class today about the Messiah. I'm teaching tomorrow morning my Torah class and on and on and on. But I realized also that people have different attention spans, different needs. So I said to the people at the synagogue, I'm going to send you a one to two minute video every day. It will never be longer than two minutes and just send it out every day. So the people will still feel in touch, but it won't feel like a burden or an obligation. I can listen to it and be done with it very quickly. I always think that the ability to be brief is the gift to people because everyone has a lot of stuff that's coming at them all the time. And now I don't know about you, but I'm getting sent so many articles. You have to watch this. You have to see this. You have to read that. That when someone says, here's a minute, bless you that it's only a minute. So that really was the motivation behind it. I don't know if you're on TikTok, which I would love to see you on, but those are 15 seconds. No, I haven't been on TikTok. Maybe that's the next move. You will not find my rabbi dance video on TikTok yet. <laughs> I know other rabbis that are on it, so maybe you need to- I'm sure you're right. They might be a little younger than me, but still. Where do you look for inspiration and motivation to come up with these videos or even the sermons that you do every week? Because I always listen and I'm like, how did he come up with what he wanted to talk about this week? Different people do sermons differently. I think by talking, which means that what I really need to do when I give a sermon is just come up with the subject. 
sometimes I make a couple of notes, but I don't know what I'm going to say till I get up as long as I have the subject in my head. The challenge for me is exactly what you asked, which is what is it that I want to talk about? Once I find the subject, then I'm good. I can get up and I can talk. I live, I suppose, in my head a little bit differently from most people because all week long, there's a part of me that's searching for the subject. I can watch a television show and I'll hear something and I'll think, oh, there it is. That's what I want to talk about. So I'm always watching and reading and listening for use. Can I use this? Can I use that? I read a lot. I always have. And when I read, I'm always like looking for the line that will spark some thought in me. And so I say this to myself. I don't know if it's really true, but I have the wonderful privilege of feeling like I'm never wasting my time because whatever I'm doing, it's possible that that will provide the spark or the interest. I mean, you can find it from a sitcom or a reality show, just like you can find it from a great novel because human themes turn up everywhere, everywhere. Now, obviously each week I also read the Torah portion and most often that's what provides the initial spark. But boy, life is incredibly rich if you look at it with rich eyes. Life is only meaningless if you feel empty inside. But if you feel rich inside, there's so much everywhere that it's a question of too much, not too little. I would like to just add that I really believe you are the king of ad libs because when there's a baby crying in the middle of your sermon, you literally are able to throw it in a way that I'm like, wait, was that part of the speech? But it wasn't, but it works so well. <laughs> but that's what I mean is I think by talking. So when I'm talking and something happens, it just seems to flow into what it is that I'm saying. When I was in high school, I remember, this is when I first realized this, they would ask us for outlines of our papers and I couldn't do it because whenever I would write the paper, it would never follow the outline. So what I would always do is write the paper and then do the outline from the paper. Because I think not schematically, like a lot of people do, but I just think verbally. So if I want to know what I think about something, I have to start talking about it. And then I know it's very, I don't know, there's something Jewish about that. It's the talking that does it. People look at you as someone who's a motivational and inspirational person, but I'm sure there are days that you're not motivated. So how do you go about finding that motivation? Do you go to other people that inspire you and you talk to them about it? I do often, but also it's both a little bit of a burden, but much more of a privilege is that people will ask you to respond to them. And I find when someone is depressed, if you say to that person, go dancing, they'll say, no, I don't want to. And the reason they won't is because they know if they go dancing, they won't be depressed anymore. And at the moment, they're stuck where they want to be. So what happens is other people pull me out of my lack of motivation because I won't feel motivated and someone will write me an email and say, I'm going through this. Do you have anything to say to me? And I have to respond to that. So in that sense, it's really lucky that people ask me, if I weren't doing this discussion with you, I might be sitting here, you know, staring at something or not thinking. But because I have the position I do, I'm lucky enough to be pulled out of my solipsism, my self-interest by the necessity to respond to other people. And so that's the first way. And then, as I said, books, TV, sometimes taking walks, talking to people. I find inspiration the same place everybody does. And do you feel like a pressure to have to be a certain way or be like this kind of figure for other people because so many people are looking to you as that? In some ways, yes. I always tell people I'm not a social person. I'm an asocial person. Which is so crazy. And they don't believe me until I say, look, nobody could have read as many books as I have who doesn't like to spend a lot of time alone. And then they go, oh yeah, that makes sense. So when I'm with people, that's why I say I'm not antisocial. I actually really like to be with people and I enjoy them, but I need a lot of time by myself. 
So when I go out, I feel a pressure, yes, to respond a certain way and be a certain way. That is a genuine part of me, but I can only do that because I get time to recharge the batteries, which everybody works differently. When this pandemic was first starting, what was your initial reaction? How did you go about with your emotions with that? Because everyone's at a different level, even currently now. So where were you at the beginning? Where are you now with this? So there's a good illustration of the difference is that when the pandemic started, most people thought, oh my God, how will this affect me and my life? When the pandemic started, I thought, oh my God, what is it that I need to learn about this so that I can teach about it? And so in some ways, I don't even think so much about my own reactions. I think about how will my reactions serve what it is that I have to do? And I externalize it all the time. So I think, okay, what in the Jewish tradition has to teach us about this? And I would say when it first started, what I was trying to do was figure out my level. That is, am I going to tell people at the synagogue to be more socially distant or less socially distant? There was a big discussion about whether we should go to APAC or not, which is the big conference that happened in Washington at the very beginning. And we consulted a doctor who actually went with us and we went, but some people decided not to go. And then when we came back, it started to really pick up steam. And now I'm more or less at the point where I am very much pushing social distancing, telling people not to invite people over to their seders, to only have it with the people that they live with. And so I think like everybody else, I've moved over time in that direction, but I always feel a certain sense of responsibility because I know that I'm not only deciding for me, it's crazy because there have been a lot of parallels to Judaism of what's going on right now. That's why I specifically wanted to do this episode with you. Like this is the first time people are staying in their homes. It's a joke, like people are keeping Shabbat. I know. And so a few weeks ago, the parsha about the golden calf, that was a very crazy parallel that I wanted you to explain more. But generally speaking, it was the story and the part where they created the golden calf. It was all this emphasis about keeping Shabbat and washing your hands as mentioned. Do you think that that was a coincidence or what do you think that whole portion being at the time that it was has in relation to do with everything now. I mean, among other things, don't forget in that portion, Moses gets quarantined, right? He goes up to the mountain all by himself. And there is something in that, I think also about how spending time alone does give you an opportunity to spiritually grow. So there is an opportunity in this. And I find that it's almost always true that the Torah portion has something to say to what we're going through. There was a lot about purification, as you'd mentioned in that portion, and also about observing the Sabbath. And the idea of the Sabbath, the essential idea is to hit the pause button. And that's what the whole world is doing now. And what I'm encouraging people to do is to see it not only as a pause, but a preparation. We are going to rejoin the world, just like Moses was going to come down the mountain and the Israelites were going to continue on their journey. But for a moment, we have a chance to do things that we don't normally have a chance to do, which is to look inside, to go deeper. Inside you is as much life as outside you. But most people don't take the time to go inside themselves. And this is such a wonderful opportunity that I would be sad if life resumed the same way as it did beforehand. I think there's a chance not to remake society, but to go deeper and to understand yourself better. So for example, I've gotten a couple of questions from people who are young and dating and they say, but I'm losing time. And my response to that is, or you could be using time, which is to grow, to think what kind of person do I want to be? What kind of person do I want to meet? So that when you go back out there, you'll have a deeper sense of what it is that this life is about. 
It's funny because we're doing this video conference, which we could have done either way. But even with my friends, I'm having Zoom conferences and hangouts with them. And I'm seeing these friends that I would see maybe every two months now on a weekly basis. So in a weird way, I think this is making people more connected than it was before. Right. It's an example of when technology really is a blessing. Zoom and YouTube and all these means of connecting to each other, we didn't do before. And now we are. And so I also had discussions with people that I could have had discussions with before, but I just never did. And now we're taking the time to do it. Look, in every challenge, there's a gift. And there is one here too. I'll give you a preview of tomorrow's one minute. I was talking about the fact that in Jewish history, when you open the door for Elijah, it sometimes was very scary because Passover was a time of a lot of anti-Semitism and there were attacks and so on. And now all of a sudden, for the first time in our lifetime, it's scary to open the door again. Elijah is supposed to be the person who announces the coming of the Messiah. So redemption. And we'll know that we're redeemed when we can open our doors again without fear. But that is going to be a while. And the whole metaphor of when you can open the door to people and how you open the door to people, it's relevant to all of our lives. Going back to keeping Shabbat and taking a pause, I've in the past few years been keeping Shabbat more and more. I don't even use my phone on Saturdays. I mean, in light of keeping Shabbat, but also to take that break. And in that portion where they're like, if everyone keeps Shabbat, then the Messiah will come and the world will be better. Realistically, that's not going to happen. I don't think every human in the world will keep Shabbat. But what is a way that people can still incorporate that pause in light of all of this and to carry on what we're learning right now? You gave a beautiful example because the truth is, if people would get off their phone for a while, they would be forced back on themselves. I mean, I know I am as guilty of this as anyone else. I know when I get bored for a second, the first thing I do is look at my phone. And yet I know that if I don't look at my phone, behind that boredom is something real. So that is one of the ways that I think Shabbat can be. But also, you know, the activity, as wonderful as it is, does detract from reflection. And right now, there is no activity in the world. It's not like you're missing anything. There is no concert. There is no sport event. There is no shopping center. There's nothing out there. So you're not going to have this chance again, most likely. I hope you don't have this chance again in your lifetime the same way. So take this opportunity. It will be over soon and you will go back out into the world. But now is that chance, as you say, to stop to pause, to examine inside you, to connect to the people that you live with. And if you're alone, to understand what it is that you want after the door is open. I know that this is not so easy. It's not easy to sit in a room and just be. But that really is what Shabbat is supposed to be about. Years ago, I wrote a book with this title. The idea of Shabbat is, if you remember when you were learning to swim, that the hardest thing was to float because you had to really trust the water to float. And you always wanted to kick your feet or move your arms. But if you go into the ocean, when you float, you get picked up higher by the wave than when you swim. Floating takes faith. And right now, the chance to float and to be carried along by the world is a precious opportunity that I hope people don't miss. Now, there's a lot of comparisons and sayings that the Messiah is coming and this is so exciting because that's what it means. First of all, do you believe that's true? And can you explain for those who don't understand that reference what that's all about? So the Messiah is supposed to come at the end of time and to make the world completely different. And all throughout Jewish history, I just gave a class about this today, all throughout Jewish history, people have been assuming 
assuming that the Messiah was about to come. The Messiah is not about to come. I can't say that definitively, obviously, but remember that for thousands of years, whatever happened, people were anticipating the Messiah and the Messiah didn't come. I would say, by the way, there were two different mechanisms by which this Messiah was supposed to come, either observance, everybody would be observant, or some great catastrophe. I really believe that it is not our task to make the Messiah come. It is our task to live so that we deserve the Messiah to come. That's all. We can't make the Messiah come. People have been trying that for thousands of years. Jews, who I know are certainly better than I am, have been trying to do that. So rather than concentrate on supernatural salvation, how about concentrating on natural goodness? Let the Messiah come in God's own good time. And we should just make sure that we're a world that deserves the Messiah whenever the Messiah comes. We should be taking care of one another, not worrying about God's timetable because we don't know it. And what's supposed to happen when the Messiah comes? Some people think like the world is going to end. There's a supernatural version and a natural version. The supernatural version is, you know, the lion's going to lay down with the lamb and everything's going to be perfect. If I'm allowed to quote Woody Allen's, he said, the lion may lay down with the lamb, but one of them won't get much sleep. I think that it's probably not that likely that the whole world will be overturned. The natural version is what Maimonides says, who was the greatest scholar of Jewish history. He says, when it says the lion lay down with the lamb, it means big nations and small nations will settle their conflicts Peacefully. The Messiah isn't coming here to overturn the order of nature, but for human beings to reach their fullest potential, for people to know, have knowledge of God, not to eat and drink and be merry. In other words, we will become the best that we can be, and that still will require human effort and human ingenuity and human genius and human talent, but the impediments that exist now won't be there. So I think that part of this is that we can get closer. The world is a better place than it was a thousand years ago or 1500 years ago in a lot of ways. And that's where our focus should be. Now, I also keep comparing these times to the Passover story. And I'm like, this is like the 10th plague because we can't leave our house and everyone's going to die. Yeah. Do you weirdly find comparisons to us being in a modern day Passover? Time? Oh, yes. So many. It's not only the plague part, although that's really a remarkable comparison, but also the fact that the Passover story begins in darkness and ends in light. We're waiting for this redemption. The Passover story is focused on food. I mean, the Seder is all about food and food has become a huge theme in most of our lives, how we get it, is it safe, do we have time, should we go? The matzah, after all, represents time. That's why there's matzah, because you had to hurry, you didn't have time. Whether it is free to be free in your home, but not free to go outside of your home, so you realize there are different kinds of freedom. There's internal freedom inside yourself, which you can have. Natan Sharansky talks about how he was free inside himself, even though he was in a Soviet prison, but he wasn't obviously externally free. So there are so many resonances to the Passover Seder. And also, by the way, one of the things that I love so much about our tradition is that you know when you're celebrating the Passover that all over the world there are Jews celebrating the Passover. You don't see them, you're not with them, but they're doing it. And right now, I don't think there's ever been anything that has tied all of humanity together at one moment more than this. All over the world, everybody's experiencing the same thing. And that's part of what Passover is about, is these themes that we derive from the Torah and celebrate, but they're themes that we know every human being can understand. 
everybody understands what it is to be enslaved to something. And everyone understands what it is to be liberated from that. And everyone understands what it is to ask questions about why life is different now than it once was. And everybody understands what it is to open the door and pray that redemption walks in. So I think we're in a very global time. And the truth is, I believe Judaism is a deeply universal tradition in the same way it's a language that speaks to the world. They used to call Jewish schools parochial schools. And the truth is Judaism is the opposite of a parochial tradition because I can give you lots of reasons, but it's the tradition that spoke to the world of one God. And one God means that every human being is in God's image, not just Jews. And therefore, every experience that we have of God speaks also to the universal. So I'm impressed anew by how much Passover is not only a holiday for Jews, but actually has something to say to the world. Just with the tradition of Passover, personally, for me, I mean, obviously, it's sad that we can't do a Seder with our 30 plus Persian family, right? which is difficult for us. But then also, I always associate Passover with coming to Sinai Temple on that first morning, hearing you see. I know. And there's 1,800, 1,900 people there. Right, exactly. That has been something that's very difficult for me to accept this year, as I know for my family and a lot of people. How has that been for you? And did you have something in mind that you were going to say in the sermon? I mean, all the stuff you said right now was great, but like selfishly, I feel like this is my own personal sermon. Well, I am going to give a sermon online because we've been doing all the services online. So I will still be giving a sermon. It's obviously been changing because of everything that's happening. So I don't know what I'll say next week, but I know that I will miss the two thousand people that show up on the first morning of Passover. It's such a wonderful event. It's something that I look forward to all year long. And I will just comfort myself with the knowledge, as I hope you will, that the truth is we're still very lucky that there are people out in the world right now who are really worried because they don't have food or they don't have a secure place to live or they don't know if they live paycheck to paycheck what they're going to do because their business has closed down. I think that even in the midst of this, we have to remember that although we miss certain things very much, we still have an awful lot to be grateful for. What words of encouragement or inspiration or motivation would you give to people who are really having anxiety right now about the paychecks or if they have a family member or friend who's in the hospital? The two things I would say is, first of all, faith to me doesn't mean that things will work out well. Faith to me means you can handle however things will work out. Because I know that people who are wonderful people who've been prayed for have gotten sick and haven't done well. And that's the reality of our lives. So I don't want to make false promises to people, but I do tell them that they have greater reserves of strength than they think. And the second thing I would say is it's really important. I've gone through cancer a couple of times. And so I know how easy it is to project out into the future. What am I going to do if I don't have a paycheck? In a month, I'm going to be in terrible trouble. In six months, I'm going to be in terrible trouble. You have to live right now. You don't know what will happen in a month. If there's something you can do about it to prepare, by all means do it. But if it's just worry, try your best to live right now because you can lose the moment worrying about tomorrow or the next month or the next year. And life is real. The French writer André Gide once said, life is fired at you point blank. I mean, you're living right now. Don't you want to live now, despite the fact that in a month or two or five, who knows what could happen? We didn't know this was going to happen. So we certainly don't know what will happen in three months. My podcast, Behind the Rainbow, is about being your authentic self and describing any struggles that you may be having. A game that I like to play with my guests is asking, what is a challenge or struggle that you've personally dealt with in the past week? And how have you been dealing through it? Or how have you dealt through it? One of the struggles that I have is that I want 
to be responsive without being automatic. In other words, a lot of people will write me and say, what about this problem or what about that problem? And I know that from years of being a rabbi, I have certain automatic responses that I will say to people, just like we all do. And I have to remember that the person at the other side of that email is a person just like me. And they want a complex response. They don't want me to push button A and give them sermon B. And that for me is a constant struggle with myself because it's so easy sometimes when you know that you can dispatch all the emails. And I'm one of those people, I don't have a big inbox. I like to get an email, answer it and be done with it because it causes me too much anxiety to know I have 50 emails I still have to answer. So I try as best I can. It goes back to being in the moment to realize that right now I'm answering this person. In five minutes, I might be doing something else, but I don't have to go in my head to that five minutes from now while I'm answering this person. Just like when this podcast is over, I'm going to do X or Y or Z. But if I think about that now, then I'm not responding to you. And so that's really my struggle. It's easier when someone's in front of you. Like I'm looking at you now. So it's easier to respond to you. But so much of our interaction these days is through emails or texts so that you don't have a person in front of you. I still want to try to respond as though that person is in front of me because that's an authentic dialogue. And I want to try, as you said about your podcast, I want to try to be authentic. If there's one final message or takeaway that you want, I mean, everything you said is so amazing, but that you would want the listeners to really take as the message with this episode with you, do you have one and what would it be? I do. I didn't know I did until you ask that, but I think I do, which is I want you to think of how you want to be different when this is over from the way you were before this happened. And don't forget that because this will be over. It may be over in a month. It may be over in six months. None of us know, but it will end at some point. And you don't want to have gone through this experience and learned nothing. There was a great phrase that when Whitaker Chambers, he became a communist and then he finally left communism and he wrote a memoir about it. And another ex-communist who had learned how terrible communism was, when he read Whitaker Chambers' memoir, he wrote to him and he said, you have not left hell with empty hands. In other words, you took something with you that was real. And I would say, this is a bad time. We don't want to come out of it with empty hands. So think about how you want to change and don't forget it. I love it. This is so inspirational. I feel like I needed to hear this for myself. From a personal standpoint, this really means a lot for you to do this for me because you are truly an inspiration forever for me and my family. So thank you so much. And my mom says hi. Thank you so much. Until next time. 